and help you get set up on it. But what we're talking about this morning is Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. So open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, relatively short section today. We're going to talk about verses 18 through 22. But before we do that, I thought we might should do a little bit of review. We've been working through Matthew in the evening service, the Sunday evening services for a while. I know not everyone comes there, so I thought it would be helpful if I just did a little bit of review. Where are we in the book of Matthew? Um, a couple of weeks ago on Sunday evening, I told you Matthew has five big sections, two hands, I make 10, just five big sections. And um, each section, we know is a section because it's organized into two parts. There's a stories of Jesus, and then there's Jesus' actual preaching or teaching. Uh, but the really thing that makes these sections unique is that they all have kind of a single message that unites each section. The first section, Jesus is presented as the, the one who fulfills all the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament laws of righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus was righteous by fulfilling the law in a way that none of us are. In the second section, we saw that Jesus, uh, he works miracles, and he comes and he basically begins his ministry on the earth by showing that this is God on earth starting his kingdom, and he's inviting us to go along as his missionaries, as, as people that are inaugurating or bringing his kingdom to this earth. The third section that we saw in Matthew, we realized that his kingdom is going to be opposed. People aren't always going to want his kingdom. Um, even though it's, it's awesome, it's a great kingdom, but people re- reject it. And so what he does is he says he, he wants us to endure, to be willing to endure suffering with the promise that this kingdom is worth it. And so he gives us parables that talk about the greatness of the kingdom, and, and he does that so that we'll stick it out. We'll serve him in spite of persecution. The fourth section we saw was all about who gets in the kingdom, right? If you want to be a follower of Jesus, what do you need to be like? And the main idea we saw is you need to be humble, right? Jesus used the word, you need to be like children. And what he means by that is you need to recognize that Jesus came not for people who have it all together, but for people who actually need a Savior, Right? The reason that many, many people miss Jesus is because they think they don't need him. And Jesus says, the people who will get into my kingdom aren't the people who deserve to be there, but the people who recognize they need to be there. They need Jesus. And so they come to him, not marketing how great they were, but begging for his mercy and grace. This last section, that's where we're in today. Um, this is the fifth section And the major point of this final section is Jesus is distinguishing this kingdom from the the Jewish kingdom, right? He's saying, basically, Jesus is condemning the Jewish leadership of his day, and he's starting something brand new. It's something that I would say for a lot of us seems kind of strange, but it was probably the most important section to many of the people's minds in the early churches. They were reading this. This section was huge. I say it's strange for us because I doubt when you woke up this morning, many of you thought, I wonder how many Jewish people will be at church today, right? Probably none of you thought, how come there's not many Jewish people that go to Rayford Road Church? 
But in the early church, that was a huge question. The reason it was a huge question is because Jesus was a Jewish man. He was the Jewish Messiah, and his disciples were Jewish people. And they were claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish temple and all the Jewish sacrifices. But by and large, Jewish people were rejecting him. By and large, there were, there were certainly his Jewish disciples and certainly some Jewish converts to Christianity. But by and large, Christianity grew into all the world through Gentiles, through people who weren't Jews. And so they're asking this question, why would I follow a Jewish leader who the Jews themselves wouldn't follow? Why would I submit myself to this man who is the Messiah of the Jews when the Jews rejected him? And so Matthew includes these stories and these teachings as an explanation, as this is why we should trust Jesus even when his own people rejected him. And so he's giving us stories to say, ultimately, the Jews rejected Jesus, so Jesus rejected them. But you shouldn't. You should trust this man. So that's where we're at this morning, and we're actually getting ready to dive into a passage that I think is hard. I've studied this passage um, really for about two weeks now, and I've learned a ton, and it's been really exciting, but it's going to take some hard work for us this morning to understand it. The reason it's hard, even though it's short, Jesus is going to use some metaphors and some object lessons, and so we have to work to wrap our minds around them. But at the end of it all, the main idea is really pretty simple. Right? To understand all of his arguments and what's going on, that's going to take some work. But there's really just two major points that we're going to see. Jesus is going to tell us, don't be like the fig tree and do be like his disciples. Don't be like the fig tree. We're going to see the fig trees were leafy, but they didn't have any fruit. Right? They were all show, but no substance. And he's going to say, don't be like that. Don't be a person that's all show and no substance. And then the second major point he's going to say is be like the disciples. Jesus is going to command his disciples, if you don't want to be like the fig tree, if you don't want to be the person I'll curse, then you need to be a person who believes, trusts, and prays. You need to be a person who trusts God and prays. And so that's that's what we're going to walk away from this morning, is I want to be a person that's not all show and no substance, but instead I want to be a person who trusts God and prays begs him to do things that I can't do myself. So with that said, let's start reading. Matthew chapter 21, and let's just start reading together in, um, we're in verse 18. All right. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. He is Jesus here. Jesus was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road... He went up to it, and he found nothing on it except for leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the tree, this fig tree, wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, I assure you that if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, But even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this. 
Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We, uh, we understand that uh, sometimes your word requires that we work hard to understand it. And so I pray that this morning as we try to um, understand why the story is here and what it means, I pray that you will open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart to not only understand the words and its meaning, but our heart to receive it, to submit ourselves to it, to obey you, and to order our lives in a way that reflects the truth of your word. Pray for myself as I try to teach this, that you will give me clarity of thought. Make my words reflect uh, your truth, and that this will be an uplifting time and a helpful time for your whole body as we've gathered together. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. We want to start here by just looking at this first section. So if you'll turn the slides here back to Matthew uh, just the, at 21, just 18 and 19. And the first thing I want to point out is that this is not ultimately a story about a fig tree. Right? Like the whole point here isn't to talk about Jesus' view of good fruit on trees versus no fruit on trees. It's, the, what's going on here is something bigger. There's a metaphor that's happening here. The fig tree is an object lesson that's meant to teach us something about ourselves. I think Matthew's wanting us to know not the fig tree was bad, but we don't want to be like this fig tree. That might sound kind of obvious, Right? But I want to really kind of belabor this point a little bit because my whole interpretation of this passage is going to rest on the theory that Jesus means something more by cursing this fig tree than just, I don't like this fig tree. Right? So I want to talk to you about why do I believe that we have to understand this passage as a metaphor or as an object lesson. And the, the basic answer is that this story doesn't make sense in its context unless it's about something more than a fig tree. Let me explain to you why I believe that. Remember that John, in the end of John, John said that there were tons and tons of stories about Jesus and all of his miracles and all the things he did. And he said what he had to do was take all of those stories and he had to collect just some of them. He said if 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 we were to record everything that Jesus did, All the books in the world couldn't hold it. He says, but I'm going to select the ones that help us make the points that we're trying to make here. And so whenever I'm reading a story that John or any of the gospel writers write, I'm not only asking, did this happen? But why would he include it here? Why would this story, of course it happened, but why why would Matthew think this story is important right here? Some people have interpreted this passage primarily as Jesus is just showing he can do anything he wants to do, right? Anybody that can go up to a fig tree and say, you're cursed, you'll never produce fruit again, and it withers shows how powerful Jesus is. But what I think is that while that's true, this shows that Jesus is powerful, that doesn't make sense of why here, right? If if Matthew wanted to demonstrate Jesus' power, by this story, he probably would have included the story back in chapters 8 and 9. Remember chapters 8 and 9 were filled with all the miracles of Jesus. Jesus spoke to the seas and they were stilled. 
And, he, and he would, there were blind men, he gave them their sight. Lame men, he let them walk again. Dead people, he raised back to life. And all of these stories were meant to show that Jesus isn't like you and me. This is God on earth, starting God's kingdom here on earth. But that's not the major point of what's going on in this fifth section. The major point in this fifth section is that Jesus is condemning the Jewish leadership. The major point going on in section five is that the Jewish leadership isn't right with God. And so for this parable to make sense in its context, for this story to make sense in its context, it really has to do something with what's wrong with the Jewish leadership. I need to understand this fig tree as having something to do with Jesus' relationship with the Jewish leaders. And I think it does that. Let me show you how. Let's just walk through the story. It starts, the story starts with Jesus traveling back to Jerusalem, right? And Jesus is hungry, which we can pause right away and say, that's pretty amazing. The God of the world who created you and me, created food itself, created digestive systems itself, is walking and he's hungry, which tells you just how fully the God of the world became man, became just like us so much that he could go on a walk and it made him hungry. But this is also, I think, a pretty significant point because it tells us that in this way, Jesus is like us, not only that he's hungry for food, but that he's looking for something fulfilling, nourishing. He's looking for something big. And what happens is he goes up to this tree and he sees this tree full of leaves. And he thinks, that's the place I should go. That's where I'm going to get my food. And he walks up to this tree, and yet it doesn't have any fruit. No fruit on it. Nothing that could actually give him nourishment. And I think that's where the metaphor comes in. I believe that Jesus wanted his disciples to know, and he wanted us to know, that the religious leaders, the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, that these men were just like this fig tree. From a distance, they looked great, but they had nothing that could nourish the soul, right? From a distance, they looked awesome, leafy, full of everything. They looked great, but when a hungry person comes, a person spiritually hungry comes, they don't have anything that could actually satisfy the soul. And I think that what Jesus is telling his disciples and what he's telling us this morning is don't be like that. Don't be all show and no substance. Don't be a person that looks good on the outside, but on the inside you don't have anything to offer. And so what Jesus does is he curses the tree. He say, may no fruit ever come from you again, and at once the fig tree withers. It dies. And that tells us just how disgusted Jesus is with people who are all show and no substance. It receives Jesus' curse. And if we are these type of people, I think that this is a metaphor telling us that we deserve Jesus' cursing when we are all show and no substance. So the question that I think we need to wrestle with 
what would it look like? What would it mean for us if we were like this fig tree? How would I know if I'm a leafy tree with no fruit? How would I know if I'm this kind of person who deserves the cursing of Jesus? One is we can look at the Pharisees and just see, and and the scribes and the chief priests, and just ask what kind of people were they? What made them leafy, first of all? And what made them leafy is that they looked good to the world. Everybody looked at the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and said, those guys are the creme a la creme. They're the top of the food chain when it comes to moral behavior, right? These guys have, not only do they keep all the Old Testament laws, they have laws that help them keep the Old Testament laws. I mean, these guys, they don't mess up. They are the most moral people in our society. And because of that, people respected them. We shouldn't, we shouldn't get confused here and start thinking that everybody hated the Pharisees or everybody hated the scribes and chief priests. That's not really the case. They were very well-respected people because they did right. right? They're not caught up in adultery and affairs all the time. They, they seem to be morally upstanding good people. But Jesus says, that just leaves on the tree. Because all of their moral behavior doesn't answer the deep spiritual question that we all have to answer. And that is, how am I going to stand before a holy and righteous God, knowing that in my heart, sin still exists? No matter how much leaves I have on my tree, I still have an issue. No matter how good I look compared to society, there's still a problem in my heart, and that's that I'm not right with God. I know that in my heart. And the message of the Pharisees, be good, try hard, keep the laws, doesn't help me. Because no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be good enough. It looks good. But there's no substance to this message of try harder, do better. It leaves me empty. I thought this week of how eerily similar the Pharisees' message was to what I think is a common message we hear in America all the time. I heard... um, I heard an interview this week, actually, with Bernie Sanders, and and I'm not saying that to throw him under the bus. I just think he's just like most Americans. Because he was asked, what do you think about religion? What's your religion? What do you believe? And Bernie Sanders says, I think basically all religions are the same. Basically, I think all religions are, they come down to be good and live by the golden rule, treat people kindly and nicely. And I know everybody's on all different places on the political spectrum. I'll just say my personal opinion of Bernie Sanders is that he's one of the most respectable people in the political system right now. I might disagree with his policies, but I think he's honest. I think he's kind in ways that I don't think about everybody else. I look at him as a very leafy tree. The problem is, is that leafy trees don't have the substance that can make us right with God. Now, again, I really want to emphasize this. I'm not trying to throw Bernie Sanders on the bus here, under the bus here. This This is the American religion. 
right? That all, we're all on the road, we're all on the same road, we're all heading to God, to God in different ways, but it all is basically the same. That, that's, that's just American religion. But the problem is this do good, live good, be nice to others doesn't make us right with God. I wonder how many people have come to church because we've seen our children, our, our children are born and we want to make sure they live right. Or our children start making bad decisions and we realize I need to get them in church so that they'll, they'll live better lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're really just saying, I want my kids to be leafy green. But the problem is leafy green people can still go to hell. Right? And that's what's wrong with the American religion. Is it doesn't satisfy the deepest question of our soul. How can a holy, righteous, just God send somebody like me to heaven? How can he get somebody that's not holy, not righteous, not just? How can he still be good and pardon somebody that's not good? A religion like the Pharisees that tells you try harder, do better, be the best person you can be, the kindest person you can be, can't get you and I to heaven. And if that's, in spite of all the other good that it might do, if it can't get us to heaven, it's ultimately all show and no substance. This week, um, Pastor Johnny said his Grandkids were in, so, so was his daughter, but once you, have a, once you have a daughter, once you have a daughter, it doesn't matter, just the grandkids. But uh, <laughs> I was hanging out uh, with his daughter, and she told us a story, and it's helped me think through this week this difference between being leafy green and actually having some fruit. Uh, Kara is in a Bible study in Raleigh, and it's a women's Bible study. Well, I think it's men and women, but the women meet together, and and she said there was a new lady who had come, and she was there for a few weeks before she announced to her group that she has an eating disorder. She struggles with an eating disorder. And Kara said, I was so proud of the women in my group because they responded to this, this lady right away with, Jesus died for that sin. And I thought, that is awesome. Because what she said is, first off, they didn't try to act like that's no big deal. Right? They didn't try to say eating disorders are no big deal. They recognized this eating disorder is the fruit of a sinful heart. Right? This eating disorder is the fruit of a rebellion against God. You don't eat right because you don't love God correctly. And they called it sin. Right? They didn't call it a problem. They didn't call it just a, a small thing that you can work harder, try harder, do better. They said, this is a sin, but this is a sin that God died for. The God of the world died for this. And what they told her is that because Jesus died for that sin, it helps her in two ways. One is it pays the penalty for her sin. Because Jesus died, this woman with an eating disorder does not have to pay the penalty for her rebellion against God, right? Even though she struggles with an eating disorder, which she's doing damage to the body that God has created and given to her, 
through this eating disorder, God still loved her so much that he would pay the penalty for the destruction that she's causing to her body so that she could spend eternity with him in heaven. There's hope because he's paid the penalty for that. But it's not just that he's paid the penalty. Anybody who knows anyone struggling with any sort of addiction, including eating disorders, knows this is bondage, right? Very few people get it. You might start with the the eating disorder thinking, I can control it, I can control it. But it gets to a point where you learn it's controlling me. And they said, Jesus died for that. You were a slave to your sin, but Jesus sets you free that you don't have to live under the enslavement of this eating disorder. Jesus died for that. And as I reflected on this story, I thought there's a few ways here that I can see real-life fruit-bearing trees versus just leafy trees being worked out. First off, I thought the girl who would show up, this woman who would show up and tell people, I have an eating disorder. She's tired or doesn't want to be just a leafy tree, right? She's like the traveler who's coming along. I need something substantial. And you know that she's not a leafy tree because nobody who wants to look good comes into a group of people and announces, I have some problems in my life, right? If her chief goal in life is to be leafy, is to look good, to have everybody respect her, she doesn't say, guys, I'm struggling with an eating disorder, So right off the bat, I'm respecting this woman who's willing to say, I want to deal with some substance here. I'm not just concerned that everybody thinks I look good. My biggest goal in life isn't that y'all think, oh, wow, she's really respectable. Her goal is I want to deal with the sin that's in my heart, and I want to root it out. But I also really respect Kara and this small group who said, Jesus died for that. If they were leafy people... They would have said, do more, try harder. Here's a diet plan that can help you with that. Here's some, eat more. They would have given her all the things to address just being more respectable. But by moving to the gospel, moving to Jesus died for that, they moved to the heart of the issue. They said, this is way bigger than just what's happening to your body right now. Right? The the root problem here isn't that you're, you're doing damage to your body. The root problem is that you've done damage to your relationship with God. Your body's not in jeopardy. Your soul is in jeopardy. And so they told her, Jesus can save your soul and your body. He can set you free from the bondage of sin, from, from the penalty of sin and from the bondage of sin. And they brought real fruit, real thing, something that can really change a life here. I think this is the difference between the American religion and what is true fruit-bearing kind of fig trees that Jesus is calling us to be. We move beyond this surface, I want to look good to people. I came up with some questions, four questions to help me try to diagnose myself, and I'll ask them so you can diagnose yourself. This is, this is the kind of questions we ask that I want to ask to say, am I just a leafy tree? And so the first question I asked is, when was the last time you confessed your sins to another person? Right? When was the last time you told somebody, I've got sin problems and I don't want to live like this? My suspicion is that if you don't confess your sins to people, it's because you're more worried 
about what they think about you than about what's going on in your heart. If you're more worried about all your leaves looking good than dealing with the root problem of sin in your heart, I'm worried that you are just a leafy tree. All show and no substance. This, this lady went on beyond, and so I added this second question. Not only confessing, but asking for prayerful accountability for a sin pattern. I'm willing to let you get into the nitty-gritty, dirty parts of my life because I want to see victory over sin. So when was the last time you asked for prayerful accountability about the sins in your life? James tells us that when we confess, we confess our sins to one another so that we may be healed. Let me ask another line of questioning. Do people tell you about their sins and struggles? Is there anyone who comes to you and says, this is my sin, this is my struggle, help me here? If not, do you think possibly that's because they don't believe you have any fruit to offer? If no one's sharing with you that they struggle with sin and asking for you to partner with them in conquering sin in their lives, is it because they think you're all about the show and not about the substance? That you don't have any fruit to offer them? You don't have anything that can say, I can tell you about a Savior who offers you freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the slavery of sin. And, and that leads me to my fourth question. If someone does come to you with a problem in their life, do you know how to take them to the fruit? Do you know how to give them an answer that's more than try harder, do better, be nicer? Do you know how to take them to the cross of Jesus and say Jesus died for that sin? Do you know how to take them to the one that can actually make them right with God and set them free from the bondage of sin? I think these four questions can help us identify, are we just leafy trees? Are we just wanting people to respect us and think highly of us and think, man, he has it all together? If I want to be more than just a leafy tree, I have to be willing to confess my sins, and I have to be part of the solution that brings people in face-to-face with Jesus who died for their sins. Not just platitudes of being nice and trying harder but meeting the God who can actually save them. I'm a vessel that helps them meet the God who can save them from their sins. So that's the first big point I wanted us to wrestle with. Are you a leafy tree or are you this fruit-bearing fig tree? And the, the main point I just want to make is don't be all show with no substance. The second point is I want you to look at somebody who's not. Right? I want you to see Jesus' commands to the disciples and understand that Jesus is asking of them, be more than this leafy tree. Be the kind of people who believe, they trust, they have faith, and because of that, they pray. Right? So let's look. Let me just read again verses 20 through 22. When the disciples saw it, and we're talking about sawing this tr- seeing this tree, not sawing the tree, seeing the tree. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed. By the way, for those that are taking Greek, English is weirder than Greek, right? Because you just saw the tree, but you could, English is weird. So 
Just remember that. Anyway, the disciples saw that they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered them, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only, uh, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I believe that this passage, Jesus is still working in the same kind of metaphors that he was before. Right? The disciples see what Jesus has done, and they're really impressed. And they said, how in the world does this happen? And Jesus says, I'm going to use this as a teaching opportunity to tell you about something, but I'm still going to use the same sort of metaphor. And the reason I think that uh, is because Jesus makes some promises to them that doesn't seem to ever happen, right? There's no record of the disciples cursing fig trees and their withering. And there's no record of the disciples speaking to mountains and them being thrown in the sea. But I think the metaphor of what's going on here actually does happen. And I'll show you that. So let's talk about this metaphor. Jesus says, first off, if you believe, you're going to do the same thing I just did. You're going to speak to this fig tree and it's going to wither. So what is this fig tree? The fig tree is the same thing it was when Jesus cursed it, not just a fig tree. You're going to speak against the Jewish religion, and you're going to watch it perish in front of your eyes. You're going to speak against the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and you're going to see that the temple system is going to wash away and is going to be uh, completely done away with in front of your eyes. But not only that, you'll also say to this mountain, get up and go into the sea, and it's going to happen. And so now we have a whole new metaphor being thrown in here. At least that's what I believe is going on. I believe that this mountain refers to a specific mountain. Right? When Jesus says, when you say to this mountain, he's not talking if you go into the Appalachians and you see uh, any mountain there or in the Rockies and any mountain there, he's not just talking about mountains in general. He says this mountain, and this mountain refers to what we call the Temple Mount. Right? The temple is where he just left, and it's where he's on his way back to. And Jesus says, if you say to this Temple Mount, get up and go, it's going to get up and go and be thrown into the sea. Well, the question then is, if he's talking about the Temple Mount, why not say Temple Mount? Why just say the Mount? Why just say the Mount? And I think, and this is what uh, many many others, this is one of the things I've kind of learned this week, and I've been completely convinced, is that this is because he's trying to refer to a passage in Zechariah chapter 4. Those of you who are usually in Cheryl and Amy's Sunday school or, or children's church class, y'all work through in your Bibles learning what cross-references are. So if you want to do a little experiment, look up in your cross-references and see, is Zechariah chapter 4 in your cross-reference there? If it is, you'll, I'll just go ahead and read to you what Zechariah 4 says, and you'll see that this has a lot to do, I believe, with what Jesus is telling them. Let me start reading in Zechariah. Well, let me give you a little background first. What is Zechariah? Zechariah is a minor prophet. 
Um, that means that Zechariah was a spokesperson for God, and he's writing in a time uh, after the first temple had been destroyed and the second temple of God is being built. And he's a prophet, but he's writing to the people of Israel who are working under another man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is kind of like the foreman. He's the one in charge of getting the temple built. And uh, basically, the people are starting to say, this is a task that's impossible. There is no way this temple is going up. And they're losing heart. They're becoming discouraged. And so God speaks through Zechariah to say, build, build. You're going to have, kind of like Sarah Palin, build, baby, build. You remember that? I shouldn't ever quote Sarah, Sarah Palin, should I? Ken is looking at me like, I'm so disappointed in you right now. <laughs> anyway, he's saying, Zechariah is saying, build this temple anyway. It seems impossible, but you should do it. And this is what Zechariah says to the people. God, through Zechariah, starting in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the, the foreman, the guy building the temple. He says, it's not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me and said, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent you. For who scorns the day of small things? The seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. In other words, what Zechariah is saying right now is this task seems incredible. How in the world will we build a temple on this mountain? Right? It's got to be flattened. And how are a handful of us Jews going to do this, little, this huge task where there's not enough of us. And God says to him, basically, the whole reason I'm having you build on this mountain is so that you will know it's not by strength nor by might, but my spirit that can get it done. And what I expect of you is not to be mountain movers, but to do this, just to do the small tasks of obedience. He says, God says, I will be glorified when I see Zerubbabel hang the plumb line. Right? You can't flatten a mountain, but you can hang a plumb line. And then you watch me flatten the mountain. I'll build a temple where you can't build it. And I think Jesus is intentionally referencing the flattening of this mountain, throwing it into the sea, when he is speaking back in Matthew chapter 21. And what he's saying to these people, his disciples, is not only will you speak to the temple like a fig tree and watch it wither, you will also say to the mountain, be out of here, and God is going to, not by your might or by your strength, but by, the spirit, by his spirit, rebuild it. And I told you, I think that God has fulfilled this promise to them. In the lives of these 12 disciples, one of them betrayed Jesus, but 11 of them that were there, they saw not only the end of the temple system, but the beginning of the church that replaced it. And you have to stop and think, that's crazy. Eleven men, predominantly fishermen and tax collectors who were not respected, speak out against the most respected people in their society. And through that, they're going to start a church that will absolutely change the world. 
The whole world will become filled with disciples of Christ, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, because of these men saying that Jesus has replaced your temple and you can, through faith in him, now be part of the new temple of God. And Jesus says, you can speak to this mountain, this unbelievably impossible thing. And he says, and I'm going to do it through you. And the point of it is so that we know it has nothing to do with might, it has nothing to do with power, it has everything to do with the Spirit of God. Amen. Right? So this is what I believe Jesus is telling his disciples. He's telling them, y'all saw me curse this fig tree and wither, but you're going to do something even more amazing. Through the disciples, you're going to be the ones that start the church. The reason we're here today is because these 12 men believed God that he could start a church in the face of opposition that seemed absolutely insurmountable. And he said he would do that under the condition that they would approach the impossible believing and praying that God can do what they can't do. I'll do this if you trust that I can do what you can't do. So let me back up for a second here. What I want to ask is, so what does that mean for us today? One is hopefully it just encourages you to think about what God has already done. But I don't think this promise is over. I think God is still building his church. And I think that the miracle working God who says, I can, I can watch you destroy the strongholds that are raised up against the church and then watch the church get built in spite of them, I think the God who promised that to the disciples is still promising that to us, and the same conditions apply if you believe and if you pray. If you believe and if you pray. If you don't believe, if you don't pray, then you become the same type of people that were this fig tree in the first place, who believe that we can get to God through being good, through our own efforts. We're not ultimately a people that are watching God do the impossible. We're getting to heaven because we can do it. Right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the high priests, their message was not, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. Their message was, if you do good enough, if you try hard enough, if you live right enough, if you're nice enough, then you can get to God. Our message is, you, no matter what you do, you can't get to God. But not by what you do, but by the Spirit of God, you can. If you pray. This last verse, verse 22, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about it. Whatever you ask for in my name, whatever, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. What does this mean for us today? I basically want to argue that it means the same thing it meant to the disciples. But I want, to, I want to clarify some things. I don't think it means a carte blanche, anything you ask for is, is a possibility. And, and I'll give you some examples. The, when I was a little kid, I, my, actually still, I love Star Wars, but when I was a little kid, I remember laying in bed and looking at my light, and I would hold out my hand to the, to the little light, and I would try to use the force to flip my light on kind of embarrassing now, but I, prob I would wonder if I spent how many hours 
And so does this verse teach that if I had believed a little bit more, I could have used the force? Right now, that's a silly example. But let me give you another example. Uh, my aunt and uncle, aunt and uncle, were the, uh, some of the most godly people I know. But as they, my uncle basically was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and suffered with it for about 12 years before dying a pretty painful and um, disturbing death riddled with Alzheimer's and, and really the destruction of his body through that. And they are members of a denomination that generally believes that if they had enough faith, this verse promises that if they had enough faith, he wouldn't have gotten Alzheimer's, maybe not even have died. So I want to ask, does this verse mean that if my aunt and uncle had believed enough, that they would have been free from all sicknesses, that they would have been free from death? I don't think it does mean that. Along that same lines, Paul, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, he says that he has a thorn in his flesh. It's a messenger of Satan. And he prays to God three times, take it from me. And God says, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. So my grace is sufficient for you. And he doesn't take that thorn away. Paul lives with it for the rest of his life. Does Matthew 21 verse 22 mean that Paul just didn't believe hard enough? He just didn't trust enough. And again, I think the answer is no. And the reason is the whole thrust of this passage is not that there is a formula by which we can make God our genie, right? The thrust of this passage is not that if you work hard enough, do the right things, and somehow God becomes your I can't think of another, a better word, your genie, the guy who will do whatever you need done. That's not the context of what's going on here. The context of what's going on here is God says, I will build my church through you in ways that are absolutely unfathomable and unbelievable in order to show that it's not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God, I will build my church. This is not, I believe, a promise that everything you really believe in can happen. I don't believe we can start using the force. I don't even think there's a force to use. I don't think that we're guaranteed to never suffer or to never die. My role models in the Bible, Paul himself, that didn't work out in his life. And I don't believe it was because he lacked faith. I believe it's because this passage is referring to a specific miracle that God's working, which is the building of his church. But we need to be really careful here because I think that some of us are tempted to misinterpret this passage in a sense that say, I can ask for anything and believe enough. And then what happens? Some of us are tempted that way. I think many of us are tempted the other way, which is to explain it away that God will never do anything I ask for because it just has to be in his will. And so we don't even pray. We don't even ask. And really the thrust of this passage is he wants us to pray. He wants us to ask. He wants to do things that are absolutely mind-blowingly awesome in the building of his church through us. And he promises to do them if we will pray, if we will ask, believing that this is the God who's going to reach the entire world through us. And so I think I need to be very careful. While I do not believe that this gives me the ability to use the force, I would do a grave misjustice 
if we walked away from here not feeling like, I want to trust this God and pray and beg him to do something amazing here at Rayford Road Church. In fact, I wonder how many people in Baker County could be reached through Rayford Road Church if we really believed and prayed, begged that God would use us. How many people would we see baptized this year? How many people would we see come to Christ for the first time ever because we prayed, begged God, make Rayford Road Church an evangelistic tool where we reach the whole community? Everyone hears the gospel because you have planted this church here. I think those are the kind of prayers God wants us to be asking. I think he wants us to ask specific prayers. It, this, and this is more than any church I've ever seen. God's proven that he answers prayers in this church. Right? How many weeks ago was it? Robert, we were praying for you specifically. I think at that point you were on the ventilator and we were asking you to be taken off the next day. Uh, same thing with Garrett, right? We prayed about his enzymes for his liver the next day. And that's just God saying, if you ask and you believe, I'm going to do things that can't be explained other than God's working. And he's proven to us that he wants us to be people that ask and pray. And he says, I'll work. I'll do what you can't do. But the point of this isn't to say that I have control over God. The point of prayer is to show that it's not by my might, not by my power, not my ability to manip manipulate God, but by his spirit, he can use people like us to reach a world that seems impossible to reach. So let me move to some application to, to refocus us here on what's the big the big thrust. And there's really just two points. The first is don't be like that fig tree. Don't be all show and no substance. Ask yourself, am I confessing my sin? Am I willing to sacrifice people's opinion of me in order to deal with real heart root issues of sin in my life? Am I willing to say to people, I have issues and I need the gospel to penetrate my heart, will you be part of that with me? Am I willing to sacrifice my reputation to deal with the real substance of Christianity? And then in the second thrust of this is if you're that type of person, if you really want to be a person that gets beyond the show and into what Christ, the substance of Christianity, then that will be manifested through trusting and praying. That will be manifest that we will know that we are people that aren't like this fig tree when we are willing to trust God to do things that seem impossible and we spend time praying constantly, begging him to do something. So as the music team comes up, I'm going to pray and we'll move into a time of response. And let me ask you just to search your own heart in these issues and use this time of response to begin this step of confessing sin and praying to God. Let me pray now.